The world is not just always benign and good. In that way, it is also a demand, a hope and a demand to be in a world where I can look without fear. But the main point comes from this encouragement to use your eyes freely. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. When visitors go to see Wolfgang Tillmans' new retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art, one of the first things they'll likely notice is that few pictures are presented in a frame. Most are instead pinned or taped directly to the wall, adorning nearly every service on the museum's sixth floor and arranged not by rows, but in clusters, kind of like constellations in the night sky. And that's an analogy that the 54-year-old artist might himself appreciate, given his abiding love of outer space. Astronomy, he once said, was my visual initiation into seeing. A cosmological awe pervades to look without fear, as MoMA's exhibition is called, even though Tillmans's subject matter is often quite quotidian. More than 300 of the artist's photographs are included, spanning his nearly four-decade career, from his experiments with a photocopier as a student in Germany in the late 1980s, and his editorial efforts for Index and ID magazines in London and New York in the 90s, to his darkroom abstractions of the early 2000s and beyond. But Tillmans' practice has always resisted strict taxonomization, and that's true here, too. What's on view is not a series of discrete bodies of work, but a kind of diaristic journey through the artist's life. His friends, his lovers, his work, his play, his experience with loss and living with HIV, and his constant consideration of what it means to interpret it all through the technology of photography. No lens-based artist revels in the simple profundity of the medium like him. On view now through January 1st of next year, To Look Without Fear is a sprawling, years-in-the-making presentation that rightly casts Tillman's among today's most important working artists. Ahead of the show's opening, Artnet News' Taylor Defoe sat down with Tillman's at MoMA for a conversation about language, looking back in time, and how staring into the cosmos taught him to appreciate life on Earth. Hi, Wolfgang. Hi, Taylor. <laughs> Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the show. Yes, it's only just sinking in. You know, I finished a week ago before the Labor Day weekend. And of course, all the focus was on completing it and finishing on time before Friday. And then the unusual thing that there isn't immediately, wasn't immediately an opening afterwards. Well, I suppose we should begin with the title of the exhibition. To Look Without Fear. It reads almost as a kind of mission statement to me. I'm curious, what does that phrase mean to you? I mean, it comes out of a sentence that I sometimes say, that I see it as an encouragement, uh, or I encourage uh, myself or others to use their eyes without fear, to be playful, to change perspective, to not be afraid of the evidence one sees, to not be afraid of looking life in the eye, which is, of course, also a hope because it, this can't always be the case. The world is not just always benign and good. In that way, it is also a demand, a hope and a demand to be in a world where I can look without fear. 
But the main point comes from this encouragement to use your eyes freely. When I was walking through the show this morning, I was thinking that you're someone for whom the totalizing models of surveys and retrospectives and monographs feels almost counterintuitive to me. Your practice is so varied and rarely do your works stay static or stay in the past. You're often remixing pictures and changing scales and mediums and so on. The show isn't your first survey, of course, but I think it's your biggest. It's the biggest in scale and in breadth. Yeah. And it's rare in the way that it is laid out chronologically. I think it's the first time since If One Thing Matters, Everything Matters in 2003 at mm. Tate Britain. In my mind, I think often chronologically, I have a very good sense of years and, and even months within years, what happened when and what led to another. But in exhibitions, I often like to have different pictures from different times speak to each other and mix up these temporalities. For the show at MoMA, it was a welcome change to that. And uh, I realized that many people who visit the exhibition won't even have been born in the 1990s. So they don't know what a room in a gallery in 1994 felt like, or in 2003 for that matter. And so making rooms that contain and transport that feeling with the works from that time and often with the actual original prints that I keep in my studio was a real eye-opener challenge and I think a great opportunity for me and the audience. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the chronological presentation as well. There are some exceptions to that, but it is mostly chronological. And I wanted to ask you too, if you feel a tension in trying to adapt 30 plus years of work into the survey format. It's an honor in the first place. I never forget about that. And I feel fortunate that there is enough space here to really delve in deep, even though the tension, of course, has been to find ways to feel good about all the works that I had to eliminate that couldn't make it, which is surprising how many they are. And it's been a, a long process of honing in on what finally constitutes the show as it sits on the sixth floor, which I always do by, on the one hand, careful work in the model, in the studio, but then I also bring more work than I finally can hang and sound it out on site. And that is a process that took 16 days and nights, hanging the entire show myself with my assistants and with a MoMA team. And many positions and compositions of rooms stayed as planned, and others were surprising changes. And altogether, I find that the exhibition, it feels very free to me, Whilst, on the other hand, I can actually talk you through each wall and how things connect and maybe not exactly what they mean, <laughs> but there is a lot of research that went into this and I think that shows. Yeah. As you alluded to, many major surveys or many major museum shows like this collect 
objects that are already in circulation and therefore kind of necessitate loans from collectors and other institutions. This exhibition features prints from your own collection, many of which you made specifically for the occasion, if I'm correct on that. I know you've done that in the past for large-scale shows too, worked entirely with your own collection of prints rather than relying on prints that have already been made or prints that other people own. Can you tell me about that process and why you like to work with your own prints for a presentation like this? It is actually a sort of accumulation of prints that, you know, some in the 90s rooms are literally handmade then by me. And some prints might have hung in Tate Modern or in Tate Britain or at the Bayerle. So it's a cumulative pool of exhibition prints that I keep really to be able to make the installations that I do. And the installations are part of my work. No? They are inseparable from what I do. And in order to have free hand at even handling the work, they have to come from myself because otherwise the museums would not be able to guarantee the lenders the guarantees that they usually have to give. Also, the light levels would be not possible to do the way I do them. And so what I can do in an exhibition here that lasts three and a half months is totally responsible and okay for the material, the way I use it. They will last many, many years. But in a collection setting, the works are, of course, much uh, better if they are sea prints in frames. And on the other hand, of course, the unframed inkjet prints from the early 90s I devised as conceptually reprintable. It was even then an interest of mine to have low transportation bills and a low environmental footprint that the largest pictures in this exhibition that are some are uh, one is six meters wide, um, others are three by four meters, would be a huge task to transport them in stiff segments even. So the lightweight inkjet print had an attraction to me for various reasons in the for now over 30 years. And it's a trust in the fragility of the object that one can enjoy that whilst knowing that they can be reprinted. And on the other hand, I don't believe in now everything has to be reprinted every day. No? Like I enjoy the beauty of the chemistry squares, which I made 25 years ago, and the value of paper and the original photocopies from 35 years ago that looked like they were made yesterday and they kept incredibly well. So I don't believe this thought that photography is always like this perishable good. There is a beauty to the original materiality. But yeah, I can only make these exhibitions if there are not a lot of constraints to the origins. This might be going a little bit off the deep end, but this is a topic that fascinates me. I've read that you've developed early on in your career a kind of system of presentation for your work that involves different types of prints, different scales at which they're printed, and different intervals at which they're presented in the gallery. And so what seems, I think, to a lot of people like a kind of chaotic constellation of pictures, I know that there's a method to that madness. 
in every show that I've seen of yours. I've tried to sort of crack that code for myself, see if I can figure out if there is a kind of like A to B logic to it. I wonder if you, in preparing for a show, you consider printing certain pictures in various formats or if you have a specific format in mind, if you have a specific scale or size of a picture in mind and how that may have applied to this particular exhibition. Mm -hmm. All exhibitions uh, since 92 have underlying a matrix of formats that have been present throughout and I haven't changed. It's the 12 by 16 inch or 30 by 40 centimeter C-print, it's the A3 photocopy, it is the 20 by 24 inch or 51 by 61 centimeter C-print, and then the large format prints are governed by the roll sizes. Initially, they were 119, and for 20 years now, they are 135 centimeters. And then there is the postcard size photograph, which is the size in which I originally met the image when it came from the lab. And so all the exhibitions have an underlying order of industrial print sheet sizes, which I happily subjected myself to, and within which I felt free to do whatever I do, not to place an image with borders, with all borders on the left, with no border on the right, with borders all around, but always accepting this is the overall sheet size, insisting also that the paper is the work and that you can't just trim that off. And that creates a rhythm, I think, on the wall that is not all that mad and all that chaotic. And of course, language favors these words. It's really an attempt to also reflect the way that I look at the world from this chair, looking out of the window there, looking down, seeing a still life on the table, looking you in the eye, uh, seeing a portrait. All of that is not necessarily a linear perception at 150 centimeter center height on the wall. And I think if you free yourself from the, I mean, you're, you're always welcome to try and playfully crack the code. Right. Um, <laughs> or if you observe the sizes, you know, you would see the recurring sizes. It is also possible to understand, but I think it's important just not to want to read it in the one way that it was intended because there are really many points of entry with color for example being one yeah The show features a new iteration of Truth Study Center, your installation of wooden tables on which there are collaged pieces of literature and pictures and other found materials that interrogate the ways in which media shapes and distorts the narratives around certain political issues, the Bush era, war on terror, for instance. The MoMA presentation includes two versions of Truth Study Center. One, a recreation of a version you first staged back in 2005, and the other, a new version comprising recent materials. How has this project evolved for you since you first created it, and why did you choose to include two versions in this particular show? 
I had no idea back then that the word truth would be right at the core of the political international discussion 10 years later. And I did ask myself how to continue this because initially it was a collision of sensical and nonsensical items and kind of a reflection of a cacophony of voices. And later tables focus more on looking at how we perceive information and how the brain computes information, how the eye, for example, there's one recent table that focuses in on a scientific paper of two scientists who found that the visual cortex that connects the retina to the brain is physically totally not able to transport as much information, as much data as would be necessary to see the pictures in the resolution that we see them at or that we think we see them at. And so there is an incredible phenomenon at work where the brain seems to imagine from data banks of information that it stores somewhere to complete the incomplete picture that is actually translated from the retina. And on the other end of the spectrum are the astronomical advances of trying to find exoplanets of the Hubble Space Telescope and the human's quest to decipher information at the very verge of visibility. It's like, what is information and what is noise? And all this, be it the historical findings that Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction or other sort of factual political elements that circulate on the tables together with these scientific explorations, they all are bound together by history and a sense of time. And recently I interspersed these sentences called Time Mirrored that put all of this in sometimes surprising context, like one reads, now from today, 1993 is as far away as the Civil Rights Act was in 1993. Right. An interest in text and language has always been present in your work. But for me, it's grown more pronounced in recent years. And that's something that MoMA's recently published book of your collected writings and interviews, The Wolfgang Tillman's Reader, really solidified for me. How has your relationship to language evolved over the course of your career? I mean, to jump into the middle of those 30 years around the late 2000s, I realized that the lectures and talks that I gave occasionally, maybe two, three, four times a year in different cities, gathered real considerable amount of people, you know, 200, sometimes 500 people, who sat still attentive for 80 minutes, which is, you know, not normal, not always just to be taken for granted. People start shuffling and, and move and go get out. And I realized that this is actually a medium in itself. It is a form well, ultimately, to jump forward, I have noted and written down thoughts and ideas and sentences that resembled or had poetic impulses. And in 2015, made the jump 
to music, which was a very early form of expression for myself in the mid-80s as a teenager, and even then the time of the 2016 anti-Brexit referendum posters really came out of language. Initially, I just wanted them to be text posters, and somehow the urgency of that moment allowed me to find words, and at the same time, I was able to tap into earlier notes, like that what is lost is lost forever line, and the role that language played in my work as a slight undercurrent in titles of works and exhibitions in the 90s and 2000s had become a much more tangible and active element in the last years. Like this line, how likely is it that only I'm right in this matter? It's just a simple sentence, but when you read it, I mean, how likely is it that only I'm right in this matter? It just makes you so aware of just how absurd that would be. Right. (laughs) I originally had that exact picture in mind. I remember that picture from your, I think, 2018 show. It's Warner. And it seemed to me that even though text had existed in your work going back to the very beginning, that it has had a more prominent role in recent years, and not just in your photographic or picture-based work, but with your album as well. Your voice is front and center in that album, and the phrase, insanely alive, really sticks with me. I love that phrase. One last question for you, Wolfgang. Something that really ties your work together for me is your interest in astronomy, which I know goes back to when you were a child. And the show includes numerous examples of your astronomical pictures made across your career, including one of my favorites, which is Venus Transit, Mm. a picture that depicts the planet Venus passing in front of the sun, which is a relatively simple phenomenon. It's a rare phenomenon, but a simple one. It's also a profound phenomenon, I think. And it seems to me that many of your pictures, even the more quotidian shots, quote unquote, revel in a kind of similar phenomenon of objects coming together or aligning, be they bodies on a dance floor or pieces of fruit on a windowsill. Can you tell me about how your early experiences with astronomy informed your way of looking and if you still kind of feel the strains of those experiences with you today? One thing that will always stick with me is the understanding that one learns when observing through a telescope is is that looking is not equal looking. That we have in the eye, for example, receptors that are more light sensitive that are on the periphery of the retina and in the core, they are more color sensitive. So in order to see certain phenomena or certain objects, you have to look a little bit aside of the object. And the way that astronomy taught me how to observe and taught me the importance of exact observation and trusting your eyes, trusting the recorder, but actually also knowing of the faults of the eye and the limitations. That stays at the core of how I think. And on the other hand, I guess there was a a sense of comfort that came from experiencing the vast infinity and loneliness of space, which 
could make you dizzy and feel especially lonely. But I always felt, well, if we're that lonely, it can't be that bad for me personally. You know, then it's the same for all five or seven billion humans. And we're in this together. You know, we share this loneliness. And that is a certain, like a solidarity that I hope people get from astronomy. That's why I feel astronomy, the James Webb telescope, is peace work. It brings people together, hopefully, ideally. You know, like There have been lots of hopes in the space age that it would all bring everybody together. Of course, it still hasn't done that, and the ISS is falling apart, and maybe no more Russians and Americans and Europeans will fly together. But I have uh, still full faith and hope in astronomy being a really empowering and peace-inducing um, science and activity. Well, that seems like an appropriate place for us to end. Thanks, Wolfgang, for sitting down with me. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.